0: En Pinellas Park W262CP Bayonet Point brought to you by Moss Nissan Moss Nissan portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time Odyssey the following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time up next is verse by verse sponsored by verse by verse ministries <laughs>
1: And I believe that God put it in their heart to go back to Israel. In fact, if you speak to Jewish people today who, who came to Israel from that time era and you say, why, why did you come? And, and many will say, I don't know why. I just sensed in my heart that it was time to go home.
2: The horrors of the Holocaust are almost too terrible to contemplate. The atrocities carried out by the Nazis against the Jews and others in their death camps caused even the war-hardened soldiers and war correspondents who viewed them to literally vomit. It was an unspeakable evil. Millions of men, women, children, and babies were slaughtered, while millions more endured hunger, torture, and shameful humiliation, and all because of their ethnicity. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Verse by Verse. We are following along as Pastor Steve leads us through a study of the book of Esther. We've been challenged again and again throughout this study to recognize God's wisdom and control over every part of our lives. And today we'll be reminded that even the wicked plans made by evil men are still under God's wise supervision. It's difficult, even after decades have passed, to speak of something good coming from the Holocaust. It was just that evil. And those who first brought these criminal acts to light would certainly never have dreamed of looking for the proverbial silver lining. Yet God has used even this terrible episode in human history to achieve His plans for His chosen people. He brought them back into the land from which He had driven them nearly 1,800 years earlier. And as Steve shows us today, that kind of control has always been a characteristic of our God.
1: It's hard for the Western mind to grasp that ancient political leaders didn't do anything until they checked with their astrologers and their magicians. They were, they were all involved in the occult. They didn't make any major decision without consulting the guidelines of astrology. And I want to illustrate this for you. From Scripture, in fact, if you'll turn to Ezekiel, and just keep going in your Old Testament until you reach Ezekiel chapter 21... You'll see the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then you'll get to Ezekiel chapter 21. It's an easy place to remember Ezekiel 21, verse 21. Now, this is referring to King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, and Babylon was the greatest kingdom before the Persian kingdom. In fact, the Persian kingdom. Uh, kingdom followed the kingdom of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar was the great king of Babylon. Now it says in verse 21 of chapter 21 For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the household idols, he looks at the liver. And you know what all this is talking about? It's, it's kind of bizarre. Nebuchadnezzar apparently didn't know which way to go. He came to a fork in the road and didn't know whether to destroy Jerusalem or whether to destroy a place called Ammon. And he didn't know what to do. So how does he decide what to do? He uses three superstitious methods to determine what he's going to do. The first method is, the first one, it says that he shakes the arrows. What does this mean? It means he casts lots with arrows, like drawing straw, straws today. There were two arrows that were placed in a quiver, and each arrow had the name of either Jerusalem on it or Ammon on it, and the arrow drawn was the one that God said should be attacked. It's as simple as that. So he had these arrows, and he picked one and said Jerusalem, and so he said, okay, so I go to Jerusalem. It also says that there was a second method. He consults the household gods. How he did that, I, I don't know, but I don't think we need to Uh, understand exactly how he did that. He just did it. He consulted the household gods. Very superstitious. He wanted to know what the gods said to do. The third one, his third method is just fascinating. It says he looks at the liver. What he did, and this was a very, very common custom in those days, is that uh, they would examine the liver of animals, mostly sheep, to determine what the gods wanted them to do. There was a name for this practice. It is known as hepatoscopy. Hepatoscopy, and we get our word hepatitis from that. Hepatitis meaning the inflammation of the liver. Hepa, hepa meaning liver and scope meaning to see. Hepatoscopy. Soothsayers would examine the shape and markings of an animal's liver to see if a proposed plan was favorable or not. So this gives you a little bit of an idea of of what Haman is thinking in his approach to determining what the best day will be to wipe out the Jewish population. Now, you may wonder, why is this so important? So this man is incredibly superstitious. What has that got to do with the story? He's he's. You may think he's just dumb and doing this, and uh, who cares about it? Listen, it has everything to do to do with all of this. This is fascinating. It has everything to do with God's preservation of his people through providence. Providence is the way God works behind the scenes to accomplish his will. And his will is to preserve the people of Israel. So how does this all fit in? Listen, if Haman is not superstitious, then he makes a simple, intelligent, military decision and he attacks the Jewish people in a few days or even a few weeks. But he doesn't do that. If he does that, the Jewish people are wiped out from a human standpoint. But he is superstitious. And in the providence of God, the lot falls upon a day in the month of Adar. Now, Adar is the equivalent of our month of March. And Adar, so I say Adar is basically March. Sometimes, though, in our calendar year, it comes out in February uh, and March. That is Purim comes out in February and March. But most of the time it's in March. That's the twelfth or the last month of the Jewish calendar. But I want you to notice in verse 7 of chapter 3, it says, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan. Nisan. Now notice when the lot was cast. The lot was cast in the month of Nisan, which is the first month, which is the equivalent of our April. So what does that that tell us? Where did the dice fall? It fell on the twelfth month month. Adar. Do you realize what this means? It means that this gives the Jewish people one whole year to prepare for their attack. Listen, the Jewish people have a whole year to prepare themselves for the attack that's coming upon them. A year allows them plenty of time for Haman's plot to be overcome and a counter decree to be issued. That's exactly what happens. A counter decree is is issued and the Jewish people get to defend themselves and Israel is preserved. Now, Folks, this is incredible. This is absolutely phenomenal that a man would tell these people that I'm going to attack you in one whole year. Nobody does that. Nobody. General Patton didn't do that. General Eisenhower didn't do that. General Douglas MacArthur didn't do that. Nobody, no Western military leader would ever do this. But we're not dealing with a Western military leader. We're dealing with a Persian leader who didn't do anything except by following the guidelines of astrology. Now, this is so amazing that it has led skeptics to even deny the validity of the book of Esther. Professor L.H. Brockington of the University of Oxford said this, uh, who would plan, he writes, who would plan a vindictive attack on the Jewish residents and then allow them 11 months to elapse, or allow at least 11 months to elapse before its execution, end of quote. See, this man can't even conceive that anyone would do that. It's really because he doesn't understand the thinking and mind and heart of a Persian leader. And I admit it's hard for us to figure out why anybody with any kind of brains would do this, but this was their religion. Do you know what's so exciting about this? I want you to see Proverbs chapter 16. You'll be thrilled by this. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, a rather obscure verse found in the Old Testament, but so true and so pertinent to what we're studying. Proverbs 16, verse 33, and I would encourage you to write this down because this is just great. It says this, the lot, or think of dice, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, Even the things that appear to be chance or fate or luck are are under the control of God. Men cast the dice in Las Vegas, but don't think that God is in control. They don't realize he's in control. That's what this is saying in essence. I mean, that's incredible. From man's standpoint, it looks like, you know, it's just fate. It's just fortune. It's just luck. But God is saying that every decision is from him. Even the dice are controlled by God. God has everything, even in Las Vegas, under his control. There's nothing that's out of God's providential control. Now, I think this is really important for us to grasp and understand. There is no such thing as luck or fate, no such thing at all. Men may think that there's no rhyme or reason to what happens. Men may think that things are just disconnected and disjointed, but God sovereignly controls it all. In fact, Proverbs 16, verse 9, we could really say most of Proverbs 16, is speaking about man's efforts and God's sovereignty. But verse 9 says this, the mind of man plans his way. That's true, isn't it? The mind of man plans his way. We make plans, we make decisions, we do this, we do that, we want to go here, we want to do that. But the Lord, the scripture says, directs his steps. You see, from man's perspective, he looks like he's the captain of his fate the captain of a ship. He makes decisions. He wants to go here, wants to go there. But Scripture says that it is really God who directs his steps. God knows what he's doing, and he knew what he was doing back here in the book of Esther. What we see happening in the book of Esther is that Haman is plotting to exterminate the Jewish people, but God is at work behind the scenes about to use Haman's plot to even glorify himself by preserving his people, and thus calling attention to his sovereignty. In fact, the most precious thing is to realize that Purim comes out every year, and it comes out really in order to exalt the sovereignty of God. Now, I'm not sure the Jewish people understand that now, but we do. And so, when Purim comes around, and you hear some rattles and noisemakers, uh, you can understand in your heart that this really exalts the very sovereignty of God. At least that is the intent of that feast and festival. Now, as I was studying this, it reminded me of another plot to exterminate the Jewish people that God used for his glory. That is, that this is not in the days of Esther, not the only plot in history that God completely turned around and used to bring him honor. The plot of Adolf Hitler to exterminate the Jewish people has been remarkably used by God for his glory. You know how? Let me explain. Between the years 1933 and 1945, Adolf Hitler murdered six million Jews. It was the greatest attempt at genocide the world has ever known. In an article entitled, Would God It Were Mourning, Gordon Stepperly, who was a professor at Philadelphia College of the Bible, writes about Hitler's concern to wipe out every Jewish person. And I quote, he says this, with the fall of France in 1940, Germany had three and a half million Jews under her control. The quick military successes against Russia added millions more. A new tactic called Einsatzgruppen, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, I think I am, Einsatzgruppen, meaning operational units, was devised to capture Jewish villages along the eastern front. Special firing squads lined up the helpless victims next to their excavated mass graves and shot them in wholesale manner. Studies show that about 1,400,000 Jews died through this method. The Einsatzgruppen was successful and aroused so few protests that Hitler, in 1941, gave orders to Himmler and Heinrich that a final solution to the Jewish problem be solved or be devised. Here's what, here's what we read. At Wannsee, a suburb of Berlin, this was done. German policy was to change from detention to extermination. A new poisonous gas was to kill the victims, and ovens were to consume the corpses. Many death camps were constructed, and the ugly big business of genocide began. Auschwitz, the main death camp, was equipped with four crematories, totaling 46 ovens with a total capacity of 500 bodies an hour. Late in the war, five trainloads with 14,000 people were arriving daily at Auschwitz. This was more than the ovens could handle. Even with the tide of war going strongly against him, Hitler gave high priority to the liquidation of the Jews." End of quote. Now that is a real parallel to Haman and what we've been studying in the book of Esther. Satan was behind it all. And by the way, if you ever study the life of Adolf Hitler, it would become clear and it's not just talk that this man was demonically possessed. He was into the occult. You may hear people flippantly say that he was a madman. Well, He was a madman controlled by Satan. As you delve into his life story, you'll see that he was very much into the occult and Rosicrucianism and creatures from the center of the earth and things like that. That's what he believed. But that's not the point here. In the providence of God, God used that atrocity of Nazi Germany trying to wipe out the Jewish people to do an amazing thing. They realized that that Eastern Europe was closed to them they fled Eastern Europe after the war and even before the war. And where did they go? To the only place they, they knew to go, and that was to Israel. Now, it's true, many came to the United States, but there were immigration laws and there were in, incredible political intrigue and pressure going on, especially with Great Britain. And uh, the, the nations of the world basically turned their back to the Jewish people. And I believe that God put it in their heart to go back to Israel. In fact, if you speak to Jewish people today who, who came to Israel from that time here and you say, why why did you come? And, and many will say, I don't know why. I just sensed in my heart that it was time to go home. God used the Holocaust as the greatest single factor in pressuring the United Nations to vote in 1947 to establish a homeland for the Jew. Palestine was in the hands of England at that time, uh, they, they did not know what to do with it. They were getting pressure from the Arabs. They were getting pressure from the other nations. They, they, didn't, know, they didn't know what to do. Ships were coming by, by uh, thousands and hundreds to Palestine with Jewish people on it. And and uh, Britain had published what's called the White Papers, restricting Jewish immigration to about 1,500 a month. Well, that was, uh, that was like a drop in the bucket. That, that, that was nothing millions wanted to come and and they kept turning them back. They would either turn them back to to Europe or else they would transport them to the island of Cyprus. And there was even a famous movie made about this with the ship, The Exodus, which refused to go back and so forth and finally Great Britain threw up its hands and they they gave Palestine over the problem to the United Nations and the United Nations voted in 1947 to establish a homeland for the Jew primarily because of what Adolf Hitler did. You see, God is still in the business of, of providentially protecting his people. And if, you, and if you understand a little bit of what happened then, you'll understand why Israel uh, is so strong in their concern for their own nation and will never give back the city of Jerusalem and, and all of that that's going on today in the Middle East. God has been glorified. The Jews have returned to the land. They are in the land. They will establish a peace treaty in that land with the Antichrist. Prophetic events will shape up the way God said they would and the Lord Jesus will come to redeem Israel and God's word will be found to be faithful. So Haman's plot, Hitler's plot, only illustrate that there's a sovereign God who is demonstrating how he is in control of everything. So Haman decided through the casting of lots when the right day would be to destroy the Jews. So back in Esther chapter 3 verses 8 through 10, we read this. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, see now he's got to go to the king and he's got to sell him on this plan. He knows what he wants to do, he's got, but he's the prime minister. He's not the boss. He's got to sell his plan to the king. So he says, there is a certain people, notice he never even says the name of the Jewish people, just a certain people. And I believe that the reason he didn't say this is because Persian kings in the past before Xerxes had been very favorable to the Jewish people. Uh, Cyrus and Darius had, had been very favorable to Israel, and so Haman deceitfully does not indicate which people it is, but he says, "'There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples "'in all the provinces of your kingdom.'" Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Well, he gives he levels three charges against the Jewish people. Number one, he says they're scattered and dispersed in the kingdom. In other words, they're a foreign element. They're, they're out of their domain. They don't belong here. How many times Israel has heard that? They don't belong here. They're foreign elements. They're not welcomed here. They're aliens. Get rid of them. Jew has been hounded like that. That's why they want Israel as their homeland. Number two, he says, they have different laws. In other words, they're peculiar. They don't fit in. And that's true. That's true. God has intended them to be peculiar. He intended ultimately that that they would be a light of the world and people would see by their peculiar ways that uh, they would recognize the holiness of God and ultimately the Messiah. But this is what, what Haman said they are peculiar. They don't fit in, they have different laws. And that's accurate. But the third charge is not accurate. He said they don't observe the king's laws. That is is not true. Has never been true for the most part of Jewish people. And now it's true that Mordecai didn't observe the laws, but one disobedient person doesn't mean the whole people are disobedient. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, you can look it up later, Jeremiah basically said, when you're in another nation, observe their laws. So Haman purposely perverted the truth. But can I show you something exciting, something really just thrilling with the providence of God? By not telling the king the names of the people he wanted killed, Haman unwittingly is playing right into the hands of God's sovereign plan. If he mentions the name of the Jewish, the, the Jewish people, other things take place, other circumstances begin happening. But by not mentioning the name, we're going to find that Mordecai goes to Esther, And Mordecai is going to say to Esther, Esther, you've got to go to the king. You've got to tell them who, you've got to tell them who you are. You've got to set up something. You've got to preserve and protect your people. And so, so all this is being shaped up just because Haman doesn't mention the Jewish people. And by Esther concealing her identity, it all contributes to the preservation of Israel. Now, she wasn't right in doing that, but God's going to use it, even as he's going to use the sin of Haman. Haman is so determined to carry out his plan that he offers to pay a huge, incredible sum of money as a reward for those who carry out this decree. Verse 9, he says to the king, if it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed those people who I've spoken about, be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. You know what 10,000 talents of silver is worth today? About $20 million. Maybe with inflation, maybe higher. And you might say, well, that's impossible. Where would he get so much money? Let me tell you, the Persian governors were very wealthy. And they obtained their wealth sometimes in a very illegitimate way. But I think beyond that, verse thirteen is the key. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. I think that's the key. The way he, he was going to pay for this was to take everything the Jews owned. So he has no problem in coming up with $20 million. He's just going to take what belongs to the Jewish people.
2: Profitability can be a pretty big selling point in today's world, and the world of ancient Persia was no different. Haman did not need to convert King Xerxes to share his hatred of the Jews. Instead, he sold him on his plan by using simple, old-fashioned bribery. After all, even kings are interested in getting wealthier especially kings who are bent on world conquest, as Xerxes was. Steve, you mentioned in our last broadcast that we shouldn't be depending on things like rolling dice or flipping coins in order to determine God's guidance in our lives. But there are some other ways we tend to misuse the concept of God's sovereignty. I'm thinking of how we sometimes assume that we know God's will, based upon our interpretation of surrounding circumstances. Should circumstances govern our decision-making?
1: There's a great danger, even in looking at circumstances to alone, to determine the will of God. I think there are a lot of Christians who just say, well, this is the open door, these are the circumstances. But um, I, I like to think of Jonah, who had great circumstances to disobey the Lord, and he shouldn't have. I mean, the boat was waiting there. It was going in the opposite direction. Uh, he might have, though the text doesn't say this, might have rationalized, well, isn't this, isn't this great? This is, this is all of the Lord. And so I think there's a great danger to put too much stock in circumstances and, and too much stock in signs and things of, of that nature and omens. And we're told to pray, trust the Lord, look to his word for guidance.
2: And he does assure us that he will indeed guide us as we trust and obey. Thanks, Steve. Steve Kreloff is the pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, where he has served since 1981. We extend an open invitation to you to come and worship with us at Lakeside if you are ever in the Clearwater area. To learn more about Lakeside Community Chapel or to get directions and service times, you can call 727-441-1714, 727-441-1714. Or simply visit the church website, lakesidechapel, all one word, dot com. And of course, don't forget to check out the Verse by Verse website, where you can download previous broadcasts of this program and also sign up for our free Verse by Verse journal. The address is